Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analyst Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll get a preview of next week's Consumer Electronics Show with Joanna Stern from The Wall Street Journal. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with Wednesday's events in Washington, D.C. and the insurrection at the United States Capitol building. This is a show about business, finance, and investing. So we're going to start with some perspective from two of the most prominent leaders in finance and investing. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, condemned the violence, saying, quote, our elected leaders have a responsibility to call for an end to the violence, accept the results, and, as our democracy has for hundreds of years, support the peaceful transition of power. Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the largest asset management firm in the world, called the violence an assault on our nation, our democracy, and the will of the American people. He added that, quote, the peaceful transfer of power is the foundation of our democracy. At the end of the day, the mob lost. Members of the United States Senate and House of Representatives went back to work. Democracy prevailed. And Vice President Mike Pence announced the certification of the transfer of power. And my hunch, Ron, is that that is part of the reason why we saw the stock market hitting an all-time high on Thursday. And then again on Friday. Yeah, it does feel counterintuitive to have the stock market at all-time highs among all of the turmoil and controversy. But as we always say, the market is forward-looking, and it's looking to that um, transformation of power. Um, it's looking at the fact that the vaccines are finally being distributed, although certainly not at the pace that we were all anticipating. I think there's hope for additional stimulus, especially in light of the changes uh, in power in the Senate, which uh, happened uh, over the last several days. So, you know, I think that's actually a pretty important point. I think we really still do need to do something for the gig workers out there that are still hurting. And as we saw in Friday's job report, you know, we we, we lost 140,000 jobs in December. And that was versus the expectation of 50,000 increase in jobs. And hospitality accounted for most of those losses with restaurants and bars dropping 370,000. So we still need a bridge to get to the other side, but I do think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. At least I really hope there is, but I think that's where we're headed. Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you summed it up nicely there, Chris. I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, the mob lost and, and democracy won. And I think that this unfortunate event that uh, disappointed a lot of us, uh, I, I think this really reinforced and it reiterated the power of democracy, why it's so important, and why, uh, even even though that was, that was obviously a, a very bad day in our country's history, uh, we should be looking forward to many much, much brighter days to come. All right, let's get to a couple of the big stories from earlier in the week. Three years ago this month, we were talking on this show about the big announcement that Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase were forming a partnership aimed at cutting health care costs and improving services for employees. Eventually, that uh, entity would be called Haven Healthcare. Well, Ron, earlier this week, Haven Healthcare started to sell employees. It is shutting down by the end of February. 
I know healthcare is hard, but I think back to three years ago, and the, there were some big ripple effects from that announcement in 2018. Yeah, you, you figure you get Buffett, Diamond, and Bezos in a room, and what can't they do? They've, they've got the capital, they've got the brain power, they've got the vision. I mean, boy, let, let's hit healthcare. Let's get this done. And as you said, it just shows how difficult healthcare actually is. Three years after its founding, Haven shutting down. The, the purpose w- was really quite quite wonderful. Um, they wanted to develop uh, improved access to primary care, simplify insurance coverage, make prescription drugs more affordable. All great ambitions, but too difficult to achieve. Um, in this particular case, the, all companies had different employee bases, different locations, different priorities. Uh, each employer's existing health care was different than the next. Um, it's been written that they were each kind of going about this on their own rather than collaborating, which was the original purpose. And I think certainly the writing was on the wall when the CEO stepped down in May, and then it was, it was pretty difficult to keep other senior executives on board. Uh, so uh, Haven is no more. Uh, United Health, Humana, CVS um, stocks went up on that news, not surprisingly, as they had gone down earlier on the news that Haven was being formed. Um, healthcare's healthcare is tough. The new administration um, is is calling it a top priority, as do most administrations. Um, we'll wait and see. Teledyne Technologies announced it's buying Fleer Systems in a cash and stock deal. Worth $8 billion, FLIR Systems is in the business of thermal imaging cameras and sensors. Uh, Jason, who should be more excited about this deal, FLIR or Teledyne shareholders? <laughs> uh, well, I, I would say, as, as someone who recommended FLIR Systems for our augmented reality and beyond service a, a little while back, I, it, I wasn't expecting this. I, I think Teledyne shareholders should be more excited, because I really didn't want FLIR to be acquired. <laughs> Granted, that was probably a little bit selfish on my part, but it is what it is. Um, I, I definitely get the interest. These are similar businesses, but their technologies don't really overlap. So, I, I do think that FLIR will be a complementary addition to Teledyne. As you mentioned, uh, FLIR makes its money by selling cameras and sensors and related technology. It's a main focus on thermal imaging, including infrared. Um, and fun fact there, actually, its name is derived from the acronym for forward-looking infrared. So, FLIR, there you go. Uh, but they report their, their revenue in two segments in industrial technologies and defense technologies. About 60% of their sales come from the industrial and defense side. Uh, or, I'm sorry, about 60% of revenue comes from industrial and defense accounts for the remaining uh, 40%. And one of the nice things about their business, their supply chain is vertically integrated. So, with Teledyne and FLIR, protecting their intellectual property is really it's paramount. And FLIR has done that very well through the years. And so, I think that this will be something that plugs into Teledyne quite nicely. Two very similar businesses, both in size and what they do, but not a whole heck of a lot of overlap. And I think this actually ought to work out pretty well. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond down more than 10% on Thursday, after third quarter results came in lower than expected. You tell me, Ron, how bad was it? It really wasn't that bad at all. I think results disappointed investors, but the stock impact was way over overblown. And I think we've actually seen the stock come back subsequently, at least a bit. Overall, comp sales up 2%. Comps at Bed Bath & Beyond itself were up 5%. Digital sales up 94% at Bed Bath & Beyond and 70, up 70% overall in the business. 
Revenue is down 5.1%. Folks are, are focusing on that. Um, but that's because the company closed stores. They sold off some of their smaller change, which I loved, like uh, the Christmas tree shops and World Market, kind of selling off what they're calling non-core assets to strengthen the balance sheet. Uh, mar gro adjusted gross margins were up, less markdowns, favorable product mix. Now, net income was hurt because of a lot of one-time charges. Because remember, this company under Mark Tritton is undergoing a pretty big transformation in terms of restructuring and selling off non-core assets. So there's lots of charges uh, flowing through the income statement, about $86 million um, this quarter. If you adjust for that, they actually had profits of $0.08 cents per share versus a loss of $0.38 cents a year ago. Um, but that was short of expectations. Uh, hence the sell-off in the stock, but you know I see significant improvement in the balance sheet, a half a billion dollar reduction in gross debt. They've got 1.5 billion cash right now. They increased their full-year EBITDA guidance. They're increasing their share repurchase program to 825 million dollars. In fact, on Friday, J.P. Morgan said they would purchase 150 million dollars worth of that stock. I think things are looking good. I think the the, the transformation, the reorganization, is on track here. I feel so much better than I felt two minutes ago, so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. On the flip side, shares of Constellation Brands were up this week. Third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for the beer, wine, and spirits company. Although, I got to say, Jason, shares of Constellation Brands over the past 12 months are up 20%. That's good. I don't know. I, maybe it says something about me, but during a pandemic, I thought they would have done a little better. Well, it's a little bit of a business in transition, but but I do I do I do hear you there. I think uh, it's interesting. I mean, we're all obviously very tired of hearing the word coronavirus, but I mean, you know, their Corona brand uh, has not suffered from that at all. I mean, there's just been no association whatsoever, which is good for them. Uh, the Corona brand itself continues to sell well, but they uh, launched a new heart seltzer uh, with the Corona brand. That's been one of the most successful product launches ever for the company uh, right now, holding a strong number four position in that seltzer market. Of the day, but given that it's so new, I suspect they'll they'll continue to gain some share there with their scale. Uh, the, the challenge is really for a business like this is it's on premise, right? Bars and restaurants and, and those sales that was down about thirty five percent from a year ago. Uh, but but based on the numbers, they're dealing with the challenge nicely. Net sales increased 28% on shipment volume growth of 27%, earnings per share up 32%. Uh, the beer segment has been the biggest catalyst for growth. Uh, U.S. depletion trends of 12% in the quarter, and specifically, it was Modelo Especial uh, that was the most significant growth contributor with the uh, as as the top share gaining imported beer in the U.S. beer category. Uh, those depletions uh, grew about 20%, and then Pacifico uh, really. Uh, pulled its weight as well. A lot of questions on Canopy, and it's not really been a very good investment thus far. But I will say in the call, management, they, they struck a tone of optimism. And I think a lot of that has to do with the recent reshaping of the, of the political spectrum in Congress. Uh, so, so, we might see some opportunities there with the Canopy business. Uh, but, but it does sound like with guidance for 2021, talking about earnings per share in the range of, of $9.90 or so, it puts this, this share at, at a fairly reasonable price in a market where it seems like a lot of stocks these days are, uh, are pretty uh, or arguably overvalued. A couple of high-profile executives are riding off into the sunset. Details next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Fintech startup SoFi is getting ready to go public. The online lender is not planning an IPO. It will go public via the suddenly popular SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Vehicle. Jason? 
You cover the financial sector for our industry-focused podcast. How interested are you in SoFi? Yeah, I would have said a couple of years ago, probably not so interested. But fast forward to today and seeing what social finance has done, SoFi, it is becoming more interesting. It, it, this really does seem like a very good fit, a very good combination in, in, in regard to the IPO, particularly in an age where we're seeing so much innovation in the world of finance and banking. And so, SoFi's mission is to help people reach financial independence and to help them realize their ambitions. And they do that through a number of different uh, channels. Uh, I mean, they're doing something right because they've got one million plus members and counting. But the business initially, it was originally founded on a on an alumni funded lending model that ultimately helped connect students and recent graduates in order to deal with the touchy topic of student loans. And since then. They've evolved the business to a number of different services in banking and in lending. And to that point, they actually just received preliminary conditional approval from the U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in its application for a national bank charter. So, they have big aspirations where finance is concerned. And clearly, again, like I said, just judging by the number of folks using their products and services, they're doing something right. So, I suspect this is, this is a, given the popularity of fintech these days and the way that we're seeing finance evolve, I think this will be well-received. If you pronounce finance finance, is it actually SOFA? <laughs> or if, if you know if you want to just be a little bit more casual, Ron, you can just pronounce it Sophie, right? I mean, there you go. Sophie. Two big announcements in the C suite this week. Qualcomm announcing that CEO Steve Malenkov will be retiring in June. Company president Cristiano Aman will be taking the corner office. Ron, Malenkov's been there seven years. Still a little surprising because he's only fifty-two years old. Only 52, but it was a rough yeah. seven years. I mean, I mean, it's like dog years. What he had to put, go through. Um, we'll just tick off a few of the things. Uh, there, an antitrust case brought by the FTC over anti-competitive practices, a legal fight with Apple over patent patent licensing practices, a hostile takeover attempt by Broadcom. Uh, activist investor Jana Partners wanted it to break itself up and split into the chip unit and the patent licensing business. Um, and then, of course, there was the $54 billion acquisition of NXP Semi that got called off due to U.S.-China political tensions and the trade war at the time. Um, so, you know, it, it's been rough. And I, I think he's been put through the ringer. Um, he leaves Qualcomm in a pretty good place now, capitalizing on the demand for 5G phones. Shares have crushed the market over the last five years. So, so going out on a high note with the company in pretty good shape. Starbucks Chief Financial Officer Pat Griesmer is retiring next month. Senior VP Rachel Ruggieri is going to take over as CEO, uh, CFO, excuse me. Uh, but Ron, uh, Griesmer has only been CFO for a couple of years. That that just sort of, it's not a red flag, but it's it's kind of a pink flag for me. Yeah, it's a little bit surprising. When I see these types of press releases with short tenure, I always hope to see something like he's going to start his own business or he's, you know, they give us something. Um, they've given us pretty much nothing here to go on. So I, you know, you can fill in the blanks with optimism or pessimism. I'm not so sure. But um, his replacement, uh, Rachel Ruggieri, uh, certainly qualified 16 years at Starbucks, 28 years in the business. Um, I think the company will still be in good hands, but it does cause me to scratch my head a bit. This week, fans of cauliflower had reason to celebrate. Chipotle <laughs> launched a limited-time offering of cilantro lime cauliflower rice. 
It costs an additional $2, Jason, but I'm, I'm guessing if this works, this is going to move from being a limited-time offering to a full-time offering. It absolutely could be, and I'll tell you, just just surfing through Twitter uh, for a few minutes earlier, it does seem like this is getting a pretty positive response from those who are talking about it. Um, but, but I mean, you, you go back to Chipotle of, of years ago, and we talked about the risk of what ultimately has been a strength of theirs in keeping a simple menu. Uh, the risk, though, being that the menu can get stale, and, and I think that was something that was probably starting to to, to come to fruition there. And, and so these types of menu items and innovations, these these help keep Chipotle in the conversation, and they help broaden their customer base too. I think really. And and so if you look at this menu today, I mean, this is just not the same menu. This is not the same Chipotle that we grew up with, so to speak, uh, five, six, seven years ago. And you look at the lifestyle bowls alone. I mean, they're making it. Not only easier in some cases to order, but they're also expanding their audience at the same time. So for me as a Chipotle shareholder, I mean personally, I don't know that I have any interest in the cauliflower rice, but I sure like that they're doing it because I think it's going to continue to broaden their customer base and keep people coming back for more. Yeah, and it's interesting to see this continuation of this anti-grain trend. I think it's the paleo diet um, that is, I think most uh, famous for, for eschewing uh, grains because our ancient ancestors did, did not, um, grains were not part of their diet. Of course, they only lived to be like 40, but I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure that's relevant. Um, but it is interesting to see lots of restaurants kind of continue this trend uh, to put things on their menu that aren't grain-based. Well, and to your point, Jason, I mean, that, that really was the story for a number of years. And part of the reason it was the story is because Stephen Ells, who was running the company at the time, continue to talk about it. But, you know, you look at the job Brian Nickel has done, it wouldn't surprise me, not only if this, uh, if this is successful, it moves to full-time, if we saw a couple of other tests over the next couple of years like this. I think that's that's something to keep an eye on with Chipotle. I think for me personally, as an investor, I, I want to see this kind of stuff. I want to see them continue to do this kind of stuff, whether it's carne asada or cauliflower rice. Every few months, every six months or so, often when you see them bringing new things to to menu, even if it's just for a test, that tells you they're staying on their toes, right? They're they're not just sitting uh, resting on their laurels, so to speak. And, and I think perhaps new leadership has had something to do with that. Maybe, maybe Stephen Ells just wasn't. Really, maybe he just didn't have the mindset for that, and, and that uh, has given Brian Nickel a chance to really help take this business to the next level. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal offers a preview of the biggest consumer tech trade show in the world. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. When I'm drinking never clear, I think I'm king of this whole world. I'm Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joanna Stern is an award-winning journalist and senior personal technology columnist at The Wall Street Journal. She joins me now. Joanna, thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. Uh, given how this week has gone, I'm going to timestamp this conversation. It's just after 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. Originally, I wanted to talk to you about CES, and I still want to talk to you about CES. But I have to start with the events that unfolded on Wednesday at the U.S. Capitol building, because part of this evolving story has to do with social media platforms. Facebook has suspended President Trump's account indefinitely. Twitter made him remove some tweets, locked his account overnight. These companies have been reluctant in the past to take this sort of punitive measure. And I'm, let's just start with this. 
Have these decisions surprised you in any way? Yes and no. I think because of history and the fact that these companies have tiptoed around so much of the president and what's been put out there, I will say I am some level surprised. But on the other hand, I'm not surprised at all because I think we knew at some point there would be a breaking point. I don't think we knew what that breaking point would be. We saw it with this attack on the Capitol building. Facebook and Twitter are two of the big tech companies that were already under the congressional microscope even before the events of this week. Look into your crystal ball. Tell me where you think this is going uh, in 2021, um, whether it's um, demands uh, from Congress or Facebook and Twitter changing their policies in significant ways. I want to say that this is going to be the spark to get some regulation. I think that a, a moment like this, and you can see it, the CEOs are really deciding on a whim what they should do with these companies, what they should do to police this content. And I'm not sure they want to be in that position. Of course, they don't want to be in the position where they have that control taken away. But I do think, as, as Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai and others have said, they want some regulation. They do want some guardrails around what can and cannot happen on some of these uh, with some of the rules around the platforms. So I, I, I I'd like to hope we see some of that. I don't know how much we're going to see around you know specifically what what the president of the United States can or cannot say on social media. But um, you know I'm I'm also hopeful that the next president of the United States is 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 not going to use Twitter or Facebook as this as this current administration has. Let's move on to CES, which is next week. It's the largest consumer technology trade show in the world. It's virtual this year. Uh, so there are a lot few uh, fewer vendors involved. Um, so I assume it's going to be a little bit more focused. What are you looking for in terms of either a theme for technology or a big announcement uh, from some company next week? Well, I should say I've covered CES now. I believe it's a little bit more than a decade. And I have never been happier to cover CES because <laughs> it means uh, you know, I will. Refer, I, I was very excited to go to my first CES. I mean, going to a giant technology trade show in Las Vegas with all the gadgets and these giant companies. I mean, it was a dream. Then it sort of wears on you, and you realize you get sick every year. You eat crappy food. You're stuck in you know press briefings with without seeing your family or even any friends. So I will say, being able to cover this show from the privacy of my home with great uh, food and heat and uh, no desert and casinos around me, I'm I'm thrilled. I think, though, this is going to make this show a lot smaller because the main thing about this show is seeing and feeling and touching all of these gadgets and seeing the lights of the TVs and seeing the robots move around. That's a lot harder to do on a screen. Ironically, because you've got these giant screens when you usually go to CES. So at least hopefully that sets the, the the show for people. I think what one thing that I've been interested in seeing is the reaction from some of the major manufacturers or even some of the smaller gadget manufacturers to pandemic life, to the new normal life. So this is one thing I, I tackled in our 2021 look ahead. I think we're going to see a reaction in some of this sort of pandemic prevention gadgets, things like masks that connect and tell you that you know the the air or you're, you've got to change your filter or you can talk better on the phone because there's a, a micro 
microphone built into your mask. I've already gotten tons of pitches for UV sanitizing gadgets. They sanitize everything in your house, your desk, your car, things around air purifiers, thermometers. So I think there's going to be a sort of this COVID theme of the show. Well, Sticking with that theme for a second, I want to ask you about one of the biggest trends that we saw last year, and that was the rise of home fitness. And nothing illustrates that quite like shares of Peloton being up 400% over the past year. When you look at technology that is aimed at home fitness, digital health, how much of it do you think has actual staying power? Because in the back of my mind, I'm wondering the likelihood that some of this stuff ends up being the next generation of treadmills that we just hang clothes on. I really think this is one of the trends of the pandemic that stays with us. Others, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think web video calling and web calling is one that I think we're all getting the fatigue from it. I don't have fatigue from not going to a gym or not paying for a very expensive workout class. Yes, I miss sort of like the excitement of like having other people around, but the convenience of being able to work out from home, the integration with the technology, I mean, you can see these tech companies wanting to figure out how they can catch up to a Peloton. Apple's trying to do it with Fitness Plus, the the new subscription service that works with the Apple Watch and provides workout classes. Uh, Amazon's dipping its toe into the water already with some of this, with their their new Halo Fitness Band, and you open the app, and they've got other classes you can watch. I think this one's here to stay. I'm not sure what we'll see at CES around the hardware. You know, Peloton's the leader there, and they've um, announced a bunch of new stuff that are, that's coming out in 2021. But we'll see. One of the big keynote addresses at last year's CES was Quibi. Mm-hmm. Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, talking about the impending launch of their new short-form video platform. I know we've seen other short-form video platforms fail in the marketplace, but they didn't have the same build-up and, frankly, leadership star power that this one had. How do you view the very short life and quick death of Quibi? I want to say wrong place, wrong time. I actually do give a little bit of, of credence to that and, and what Katzenberg said. You know, They built it for the phone. People weren't leaving their homes. But like, really, there were a lot of things on the wall there that they should have seen. I mean, the you know, launching something that a video platform that you can only watch on your phone just neglects the rest of the streaming space. I mean, even before the pandemic, many of us wanted to lean back, sit on our couch, and and stream some content. I mean, that's what we were doing. That's what the the industry had moved towards, right? OTT and and being able to watch across devices. So I think that was a huge uh, blind spot for the company. They also just the content. Um, it, it it wasn't really buzzworthy. I mean, there were some stars and celebrity pieces. I mean, I can remember I watched some dog. You know, I feel like it was like a dog dating show. I mean, that's probably what I wanted it to be, honestly. And I don't. It was just like something about dogs. Maybe that's my pitch for a, a new show, a dog dating show. But um, it, it just wasn't there. I mean, the the, col- the caliber and the you know the sixty minutes show didn't come till a couple of weeks later after the launch, and that was actually some very good content. The news content I found to be better than any of the entertainment content. I mean, maybe that's just my preference. But uh, last thing on CES, uh, you you said you've been there uh, year after year for a decade. Too many years, yeah. Too many. <laughs> um, 
What's the weirdest thing you saw on the trade show floor? A couple of years ago, one of my colleagues went and, and told me uh, there was a booth with a, a not a smartphone, it was a smart rubber duck. I'm just curious in all your years, what stands out in terms of weirdness? It's everything so weird. I mean, everything. <laughs> I mean, I, my, one of my famous photos there was with Justin Bieber, and Justin Bieber was launching a, a robot, and I don't think the robot ever launched, and frankly, I'm not sure Justin Bieber's career launched past that 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 appearance. Um, and then there, you know, I had, there, there was a pair of ears that you would put on your, I put on my head that were supposed to respond to my brain waves. Um, you know, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You're really not sure any of this stuff works. And that's kind of like one of the things I'm a little worried about covering remotely is like, oh, can we see if it works? Like, what if it does? But truth is, you can't even see if it works at the show. So, um, yeah, I mean, and it's like I, I there have seen some wonderful things there, too. I mean, one of my my first experiences ever being in a self uh, self-driving car was at CES. I've been in many of those there. I've seen. Uh, yeah, I mean, lots of interesting uh, innovation in, in robotics there. Well, yeah, you know, I hope to go back. I hope to go back one year. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, in addition to your writing, you're also executive editor of video at the Wall Street Journal, and you recently did a mini documentary called "Eternal: A Tech Quest to Live Forever," exploring companies that are creating technologies to build essentially the next version of preserving memories of people after they die. And I watched it. It was not only fascinating, it was very moving as well. I'm curious, what got you interested in this topic? You know, it, it, it doesn't go back to one specific thing. I would say that there were a couple of things over the years that um, got me interested in what happens to our stuff after we die. Um, certainly, I'd, I had had some very sad notes from readers over the years about being locked out of a loved one's Facebook account or being unable to access any passwords to get into their 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 wife who had passed away's computer to get anything. Um, and those sort of things always seemed like very technical and nitty-gritty to me, and I always thought, okay, I'll tackle that in a column. And then I, at some point, started researching and realizing, well, this is a lot more than just passwords and what happens to files and folders. It's really about how our stories can live on and our, someone to be able in the future generations to hear us, to see us. What are the technologies that are coming along to make that more possible, more real? Do we want that? So many interesting questions around it. And so I started on this journey, and, and uh, I wanted to do a longer form video project. And this seems like a good one to look at. And COVID happened in the middle of what we were about to wrap the production of it. We were in edit, and um, you know, almost made the story a little bit more timely. But um, the the main character is a, is a woman who's tw in her twenties and has been uh, suffering from an illness for a long time, and COVID gave her even more of a scare. So it's just it was a story. Clearly, I can't stop talking about it. A story that I I really just uh, became really passionate about, and I I thank you for watching it, and hope more people will watch it. You can follow her on Twitter, reader in the Wall Street Journal, or online at wsj.com. Joanna Stern, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, Jason Moser and Ron Gross are back with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Seems like yesterday we used to rock the show. I lace the track, you lock the flow. So far from hanging on the block for dope. Notorious, they got to know that life ain't always what it seemed to be. Words can't express what you mean to me.
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, a couple more news items before we get to the stocks on our radar. Roku is buying the majority of Quibi's catalog of content. Financial terms were not disclosed, but reports are that Roku is paying less than $100 million. Jason, you and I talked about this earlier in the week when we got reports that Roku was in quote unquote advanced talks to buy the content. If they're paying less than $100 million for the majority of the content, you think that's a good bet? Well, yeah, I mean, it did under the $100 million. I mean, that could be any number, really. It'd be cool if it was Two. like $15 million yeah. <laughs> or $10 million. Uh, but, but, I mean, it's, it's really, we talk about it all the time. It's about exclusive content, right? And listen, I mean, this has got to be never before seen footage. I mean, it's Quibi. So uh, they've got to be able to message that to their advantage. Um, and as silly as it may seem to some on the outside, it, the, and, and, and we've said this, the price they pay ultimately will dictate whether this makes sense or not because, what this is, it's content that will go on Roku channel, which is is that app. Uh, they sell ads for this stuff, okay? So ads matter for Roku. If they can sell the ad inventory that offsets the cost to buy this stuff, whether you think it's silly or not, the economics make sense. And uh, listen, I mean, hey, Roku is now over 50 million active accounts, keeping pace with Amazon Fire TV. And Roku already counts two thirds of the top 200 national advertisers as clients. So this is a massive platform making a lot of money off of advertising. And, and they're going to be making investments like this to bring more exclusive and original content into their universe as time goes on. So, I suspect this is a small first step in what will be a longer-term strategy. And uh, again, I just I don't know how many people saw this Quibi stuff, but it clearly wasn't very many. The new year is always a time for reinvention, and Burger King is getting in on the act as well. The fast food chain kicking off 2021 with a new look, it's the first rebrand in 20 years, Burger King unveiling new visual designs, restaurant concepts, new logos, colors, fonts, uniforms, packaging. Ron Gross, <laughs> will it make a difference for the business? Absolutely not, I don't think. And I love this. Burger King's fresh color palette was inspired by its flame grilling process and ingredients. And they've developed a proprietary font built from the shapes of Burger King's food. Um, I swear the, the new logo looks older than, than the old logo. It, look, it, look, it looks more classic, I guess, but older. Um, I don't know. I guess it, you always have to modernize your stores for sure. You, you know, you have to spend some capital to keep things fresh, um, and, and this is, is no exception. I, I don't know if it actually moves the needle though. So I, I feel like I stepped in a time machine with all of this <laughs> rebrand stuff. I don't know about y'all, but I really thought this was pretty interesting. The global chief marketing officer, uh, Fernando Machado, told uh, interviewers that the the rebrand they removed blue from the logo because there's <laughs> there's no blue food, <laughs> and and they changed the bun. Part of the logo, it, the old the old bun logo used to actually have some some white in there to imply that it was shining, and he said buns don't shine, so that had to go too. Uh, that was the thinking that went into this, and and uh, ultimately taking the shine off, it it just it takes away a dimension, right? Uh, I don't know that I'm really down with that. I, just yeah, keep I, the I, onion rings. Uh, that's all you got to do. The shine gave it a little dimension. I, I thought it was I thought it was okay. 
Yeah, if you're a shareholder of Burger King's parent company, Restaurant Brands International, you really better hold your breath on this one. <laughs> I, think the, I think, as we talked about earlier in the show with Chipotle, coming out with a new limited edition food might be a better move to move the needle, but we'll see. Um, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I'm looking at Beam Therapeutics, B-E-A-M, and it's an early-stage gene-editing company that I just started looking at for potential inclusion in my biotech basket of seven or eight companies. They went public in February 2020. They are focused on the CRISPR technology I often talk about when I talk about uh, companies like Editas and CRISPR and Intellia, but the difference is that those companies are focused on technologies that cut the DNA strand and then replace the mutated genes. But Beam Beam is focused on what's called base editing, which uses chemical reactions to alter DNA. So chemical reactions rather than cutting. That's the main difference between the companies. I need to dig in it way more. They've got $200 million in cash, which is great because they just went public, um, but they're going to burn through that pretty quick. Um, so you got to be careful uh, on that front as well. Dan, question about Beam Therapeutics? Absolutely, Chris. Ron, you've been talking about a lot of healthcare companies recently on stocks on our radar. You mentioned your biotech basket. Do you think that healthcare as an uh, industry is on the up and up in 2021? Uh, for sure, especially in the innovative part of, of the industry rather than perhaps the insurance part. But um, future of medicine is changing and pretty quickly at this point. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, one I just started digging into a company called iTron, ticker is I T R I. Uh, iTron's core focus is to help its customers safely, securely, and reliably operate critical infrastructure. And so uh, we talk a lot about the in Internet of Things and, and, and one of the subsets of that, the industrial Internet of Things. iTron's portfolio of products and services it offers end to end devices and solutions that, that help utilities and municipalities think energy, think water. It helps them responsibly and efficiently manage those resources. Uh, and so, I figure as populations grow and resource consumption continues to stress what is, is clearly an aging global infrastructure, iTron is going to become a more relevant business. And, and the, the, uh, the advent of 5G in the following 6Gs and then the Gs to come after that, uh, that connectivity is really going to help, I think, uh, iTron grow to become a global leader in this space. Question, Dan? Yeah, well, not really a question, Chris, more of a comment. So, Ron usually brings the boring companies to the table and stocks on our radar, but Jason, I think you've taken the cake this time. Well, Dan, you know, listen, when you, when you turn on your shower and that water doesn't come out one day, you tell me how boring that is, okay? iTron's working to solve that problem for you, and, and that problem hasn't even happened yet. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? <laughs> That's a pretty fair point, Chris, but I'm going to go biotech with Ron Boom. Beam. Nice. All right, guys, we're out of time. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.